Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brabach. And this week, a special Christmas-themed episode of the podcast. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding. So this one was published at several different moments in time. Um, It was first published in the Sketch Magazine, as many of these early Christie short stories were, on the 11th of December, 1923. But then it was published in book form in several variations over the next few decades and seems to have been fleshed out and had various elements added to it over the years. And we'll get to that as, as we get into the story. So with that in mind, let's jump right in and get to the victim. There's not exactly a murder victim, although there's a possible murder victim. I mean, the first victim that we encounter is a young prince, and he has a ruby of incredible value, not just from a financial standpoint, but from a cultural standpoint. And he basically has... And you know what? We should say, sorry to interrupt you, Catherine, we we should say that an alternate title of this story, which I personally found confusing as we were, as we ourselves were trying to find it, is The Theft of the Royal Ruby. I have no idea why you would want to retitle such an awesome title like The Adventure Adventure of the Christmas Christmas Pudding. Pudding. to yeah, such a know. boring title as a theft of the royal ruby. Anyway, just FYI. Christmas pudding doesn't really describe, in fact, what happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it sort of does. And I may suppose. confuse American readers, actually. I mean, Christmas pudding is certainly, this is all about the traditional English Christmas. So I, I have a feeling that in American versions, the royal ruby title is more common just because perhaps Christmas pudding is just a confusing reference. No, that makes that makes total sense. Maru <laughs> is approached by um, a gentleman named Mr. Jasmine, and we are told by, you know, our omniscient narrator that Poirot has met many Mr. Jasmines over the years. And so Mr. Jasmine presumably works for the Foreign Office, and he's brought with him a young... A prince of some un... Yeah. Uh, you know, um, it's an unspecified foreign land. Uh, right. Know, we, That's we don't know exactly where he's from. Implied Middle Eastern of some variety. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's heavily implied. Heavily implied. And he's unfianced to a young lady who's apparently very smart and bright and, like, career-minded and went to Cambridge. But, you know, as everybody knows, those are okay girls to marry, but it's totally okay to, like, have some side floozies in the interim. He's sowing his wild oats. Boys will be boying. Yeah. Kill me now with except, the male cliches, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Except, unfortunately, he gives uh, his side floozy uh, a culturally important ruby. <laughs> yes, because the floozy has disappeared with, with the ruby. They were They were out. She excused herself to powder her nose and she disappeared so the the ruby is gone and this prince 
is very upset. It apparently, you know, this could have potential political implications, which is why Mr. Jesmond, this vague gentleman spy, has been, has summoned Mr. Poirot and is begging him to go to an estate in uh, the Kings English Lacey, countryside. Yeah, in the English countryside called Kings Lacey and have a traditional old-fashioned Christmas. Because and it's not really ever specified in the short story exactly what the Why? connection <laughs> is. Yeah, I mean we're, we're just sort of supposed to know, take for granted that there is a connection between the people at this country estate for Christmas and the theft of this ruby, but it is really never specified. Correct. As far as I could tell, and I literally went back and reread the beginning of the story and was like. What, did I just miss a line here where it was yeah. um, where there was a reason? I mean, they use the English Christmas as a selling point to get Poirot there, and the reality is Poirot doesn't really want to go in large part because he associates um, English country estates with being drafty, right? With being cold, he doesn't want to be cold. And he actually has a great line where he says that in my country, Christmas it is for the children. The New Year, that is what we celebrate, which I just thought was. <laughs> kind of funny because I I mean he kind of has a point there does come a time at least for a lot of families I know it at least happened in my family where all the kids grew up and we kind of looked at each other and we're like are we still really going to do this I mean it is it's a much more robust holiday when there are little children around let's say for sure I I feel far on that right and like the pomp and circumstance of it sort of seems beneath him at some level he just really wants warmth and so the great selling point here is that they have central heating right (laughs) <laughs> right, that is really the thing that gets him that gets him to go. Only only that. To me, that I'm sure was part of the original story in nineteen twenty-three. So like the story begins and feels very much like one of these Christie stories that we've already discussed in set in the twenties. So I you know, fine, but like we'll get to it's just so it's so bizarre how the, the time period of this thing just shifts. It was not added to and revised in a fluid manner, let us say, over the years. No, it was clearly revised piecemeal, although we actually have no idea what the original story was because neither of us could find it. So perhaps all of these yeah, perhaps all these inconsistencies are in the original version published in the sketch. We don't know because as far as we could tell, there was no easy access to it for us. So that is our victim, is the victim of this theft, our young prince. And we could say that there are two other victims as well. And I'll just go through these quickly because these are side plots that will fill out the story. But one of the people who's staying at this country estate, Kings Lacey, is Miss Sarah Lacey, who is the granddaughter of the owners of the estate, Colonel and Mrs. Lacey. And she seems like a pretty lovely young woman. However, she lives in Chelsea and uh, is in a hipster flat and is kind of going through a phase where she's gotten in with a bit of a dirty crowd, shall we say? And I mean, they're literally dirty. Um, it's she mentioned wears she doesn't wash tights. her hair. Yeah, she doesn't wash her hair, and she is very much enamored with Mr. Desmond Lee Wortley, who we are told wears tight jeans and has longish hair. I just like think of this guy as like a really hot hipster guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I kind of feel like newsflash. This like might be Catherine's type. 
everyone. So I feel like you might you might kind of be into good old Dez. Might might have. Let's have a moment of honesty. We make fun of Agatha for having a a predilection for a tanned face and a graying temple, but I I think Catherine Brobeck has a little bit of a thing for a dirty hipster. She likes a tight denim leg. I don't like it. You know what? I don't like a tight denim leg. I completely (laughs) I completely agree with Mrs. Lacey. Is that it? Really is unflattering for most people. <laughs> Let's just say that Mr. Desmond Lee Wortley is not looked upon fondly by the rest of the Lacey family. No, he's not. So there is a side plot in which Poirot is coming to this estate truly under the auspices of Mr. Jesmond, who's, you know, beseeching him to figure out what's going on with this ruby. Mrs. Lacey, the lady of the estate, believes that he's coming to help her somehow wrest her granddaughter away from the clutches of Mr. Dirty Hipster Des. So that's that's a bit of a side plot. In that way, Sarah Lacey is the, the victim of, of both fashion and perhaps predatory young men. There's also, there are three children in the story, quite unusually, for any, I mean, Agatha Christie has a couple of short stories and novels that feature children quite famously. The this one is that one she, of them. she also murders them in at least yes, one. Yes, she does. So. Yes, she does. Or features them as murderers. There's, we'll right. get to that as well. But in this one, there's a lot of cringeworthy dialogue between three children. And one of them is named Bridget. She's the girl. They're, they're two boys, Colin and Michael and Bridget. And they come up with a plan to play a trick on Monsieur Poirot to um, pretend that she has been murdered. So she's another quasi sort of victim, seemingly murdered on the cold, cold, snowy morning of Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, stabbed brutally in the snow outside um, King's Lacey. And we'll get to that side plot in a moment because it does all of these two side plots, of course, in true Christie fashion, dovetail into the main mystery. Shall we get to suspects? Yeah, there's not really a list of suspects. There's nope. one suspect. There's one. And let me... It's who, and it's who did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are only two people, actually, in the entire country state who seem in any way suspicious, and those two people end up being the two people who are involved in the theft of the ruby. Right, because let's just call him Des. He has come very kindly with his ailing sister, except nobody really sees his ailing sister because she's basically, like, locked in a room upstairs ailing. Because she's recovering from an operation and he delivers her meals, which I have to say thus far in in our reading, our rereads of Christy thus far, that is the most clunkily placed clue I think I've ever come across. That he delivers the meals. And he doesn't deliver... he doesn't deliver all Yeah, I mean, if you ever have also. a woman who's been mentioned as having come into the house and not leaving her room and having meals delivered to her, obviously she's going to come into play somehow in the story. She's just usually a little bit, at least a little bit more deft, and usually a lot more deft, in terms of how she places those clues right, in the story. Right, right. And, 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 so, and, so, and so to circle back... We're looking, so we're looking for a suspect who's a woman, right? Like, that's the thing going into this. We're looking for right. a woman who stole the ruby. So the fact that we go, for whatever reason, to this country estate, and there's a very clearly suspicious dude who's harboring an unseen woman in a room... Laying it all a little thick, baby. Yeah, it's really, it's the rare Christie that seems to be more of an excuse for a set piece... Uh, that has nothing to do with the mystery. It's really just about Christmas. And it's charming. This is actually one of the very few 
short stories that she of the early short stories that she mentioned specifically in her writings because the description of the Christmas dinner in this story and even of the country estate of King's Lacey is lifted from her own childhood. And she had these rich relations, um, the Wattses, who had this grand old estate called Abney Hall that she used to go to for Christmas. And it was a very, you know, big cavernous, full of nooks and crannies sort of um, Victorian place. And they, she would go and essentially just eat and eat and eat. And she, I think I've mentioned this before, but she talks a lot about what a glutton she was in, as a child and remained over the course of her life. She just took a lot of joy in eating. These are just the courses that they that they had. Oyster soup, turbot, which I don't even know what that is. Boiled turkey, roast turkey, large roast sirloin of beef, plum pudding, mince pies, trifle full of sixpences, pigs, rings, bachelor buttons, and all the rest. After that, innumerable kinds of dessert. It's one of those things that I'm sure will never again, will never be seen again in this generation. Indeed, I doubt nowadays if anyone's digestion would stand it. However, our digestion stood it quite well then. And it's just like, it really does sound like even a step beyond what Americans eat for Thanksgiving, which is saying something because we certainly pack it in on Thanksgiving. But um, I I feel like she just wanted to write a story placing Poirot into this traditional Christmas dinner and holiday time that she kind of cherished. And then the mystery is a bit of an afterthought. And it's fine because it's actually really charming. I thought it was too. Um, Turbot, by the way, is a fish course. Oh, is it a type of fish? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was great. Poirot, he is very happy to actually be at a traditional English Christmas. Yeah, he really is. And the character of Mrs. Lacey is actually... Great. I kind of think... She's great. Well, she's an unusual character in a Christie story because she's just kind of nice and awesome. And she's She's, like a great hostess. And Poirot legitimately likes her. And she's presented positively. And she's savvy. And she just has a great time with her. She understands what's going on. Sarah is really grateful for Mrs. Lacey. Mrs. Lacey really, you know, maybe she blanched a little that she wanted to live in a dirty apartment in Chelsea and, like, wear itchy stockings. Mm -hmm. But she didn't stop her from doing it. She was just being, like, a supportive, kind family member. And she played interference with her husband. Mm-hmm. And that's actually, like, the weird thing about this story is that the whole, like, sympathy point in this, I feel, is Mrs. Lacey. You want Poirot to do well, not because of anybody else, but because Mrs. Lacey is just, like, a good egg. Yeah. And we should also mention, I thought this was so interesting with the updating of the story, one of the details that really didn't need to be changed, sadly, is that the reason why the Lacys are uh, so close with their granddaughter is that they actually raised her. And it's a detail mentioned that their son died in the war. And obviously that was originally World War One, And then, you know, when this was published yeah. in, in book form in 1960, I'm sure people just assumed it was World War Two. You know, I think there's something to be said for Christie's appeal Throughout the 20th century, I think you could argue relies in some part on the fact that there was there was a consistent need for this kind of comfort reading and coziness. People were always in a mid-war or post-war zone from 1920 when she start when she published her first novel through essentially you could argue the 60s into the 70s when she published her last and this is just this whole story is such a retreat into a a festive and warm and life-sustaining family environment that is not even marred by murder 
You know, I mean, this is another rare Christie where there is actually no murder that takes place. And it's just a it's cozy beyond cozy. It's also not. This is markedly more conservative in large part because of her obvious disdain for hipsters. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the the Christie sort of conservative politics is totally there where you can see her disdain for change. <laughs> you know, like, right. maybe Dez isn't such a bad guy after all. What's so wrong with, with having long hair and wearing tight jeans? Well, I says, mean, he the, is... Says the man she- who has long hair and wears tight jeans. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Put all the blame on me earlier for like... <laughs> Yeah, to, to be fair, I, I, I think I could rival Desmond for the long yeah, hair and the, like, and the tightness of pants, so, you know. My, my dalliances versus <laughs> your own proclivities. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Back to our actual plot, there aren't really so many clues here, which is... I don't know if it's a problem. If you think Christmas stories are warm and cozy and charming, then it's not so much a problem. If you're looking for clues, well, there's kind of not a lot of clues. I would say the biggest clue is that is this note that Poirot gets, the biggest, mm-hmm. you know, sort of tangible clue. He gets this note on his bed that says, Don't eat none of the plum pudding, one who wishes you well. And it is really curious that Poirot seems to lack um, in his deductive powers here because it was fairly obvious to me given the, the poor grammar and I know to you as well Catherine that this is likely from a, mem- a member of the staff i.e. the help who should never be underestimated ever. not ever uh, not ever but um, he doesn't go there and but it is it is a member of the help in the end who did write this and in fact the servant named Annie um, overheard hipster Des and his supposed uh, sister, who's been holed up in her room, plotting against Poirot. They're very um, upset, understandably, to find out that a world-famous detective has uh, you know, come over for the holidays to the house. And she mistakes what they're saying for an indication that they're planning to poison the pudding. That's really kind of the only tangible clue. I mean, there's also Poirot himself has an eye on Des and because he's watching him so closely, we do find out at the end that he sees that Des has actually put something in his coffee, and Poirot very deftly switches out his coffee for someone else's. And because of this, Poirot is wide awake when someone steals into his room and roots around, including even slipping a hand underneath his pillow, which is really creepy. I don't know if I would have been able to just lie still while someone was slipping a hand underneath my pillow. But so he knows that someone is looking for the ruby. And actually, yeah, I guess we, I mean, the biggest clue is that when the pudding is actually being eaten on Christmas day, Colonel Lacey finds a piece of red glass in his pudding, which Poirot proclaims is just red glass and nothing more. But eventually we, we do learn that that is in fact the ruby that he was sent to find. I find it a little bit hard to believe that um, a massive cut ruby would not be recognized as a massive cut ruby. I think maybe the context of, I mean, A, it's probably covered in gunk and raisins, um, putting <laughs> gunk. And just who did, did, I mean, does anyone really expect to find a ruby? I would more expect to find a piece of glass in my food than I than Well, I, I mean, they, I they, find, they find money, right? We don't do this 
in the United States, but I mean, I think the U.S. equivalent would be a little bit like king cake, which we have from Mardi Gras. I don't, I don't know that we generally have a tendency to put trinkets into our food items other than like you know Cracker Jacks. Or, or like actually, sometimes they're at baby showers. People um, to do like the sex of the baby, where there's like a there, there's like something blue or something pink in the middle of a cupcake or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I've never had a, I've never had a Christmas pudding. <laughs> I mean, so basically what we find out at the end is that, yes, this indeed was the ruby. Poirot was aware that that dirty hipster Des had observed him putting the ruby in his pocket. He then observed dirty hipster Des trying to... Rummage uh, his room. Rummage in his room. Um, And then this is where the child subplot dovetails into the story because Poirot essentially manipulates the children in sort of a sadistic way and to get his, (laughs) you know, meet his goals. So the children have very innocently decided that Bridget is going to appear dead in the short story, there's a there's a big snow on Christmas, so they've created this elaborate tableau where she's lying snow and the crimson blood against the white snow, and it's it's all very artfully arranged. She has black hair splayed out, and they do footprints that are leading toward her. And one of the children wakes Poirot up. He and he plays along, and he runs outside, and he essentially then pretends that the girl is in fact dead. We learn that he, of course, <laughs> happened to overhear the children plotting this. And he went to Bridget, the girl who was going to play dead, and said, I know what would be fun. How about you still pretend to be dead when I get there so that the boys think that you're dead? And also, in case I have anyone check to see if you have a pulse, I'm going to tie a tourniquet on your arm to cut really, off your really hard blood so that it cu- cuts off your circulation <laughs> and no one can feel your pulse. And then he has to make very careful sure later that she's actually gone up to the room to apparently sip some kind of tonic. Oh, like a tisane, one of his one oh, of yes. his tisans. I'm like, I think she might need medical attention. <laughs> like, right. I she was know. lying I... literally in a like a snowdrift with a tourniquet cutting <laughs> off circulation to her arm. For like a you know a significant amount of time, I think for a significant amount of time, and so for for at least minutes, if not up to an hour, it's a little unclear exactly how much time's playing out here. He makes these two boys who are I think they're like in their early teens. They think that their cousin slash friend is dead. Like they're probably <laughs> fairly traumatized by this. He's like, oh yeah, Bridget's dead. This girl's actually really dead. He, I, he, I don't know. He, what he happens. gives a really he has a, he gives a really good game too, where he's like, yes, you know, it's dark. I understand as a prank on me, but alas. (laughs) Something went wrong. So he physically abuses the girl and emotionally abuses the boys. Mm -hmm. Um, But what this achieves is that Desmond runs out to see what all the commotion is about. And Poirot encourages him to kneel down and check that Bridget is indeed dead. Because what he's also done is secreted the ruby on her and he knows that Des is going to a feel her pulse and think that she's dead. And so this this is not a game and then steal the Ruby. What Des does not know is that Poirot has gotten a paste replica. So Des is actually just stealing a paste replica of the Ruby and proving his guilt by the way in which he claims to be going to call the police, but runs out. And it is actually a nice sort of, moment that where it resolves two stories at once because it both proves his guilt and proves what an awful person he is, meaning that Sarah Lacey is cured of her infatuation with this fool 
And she's just kind of told in a drawing room, like, oh, yeah, your garbage boyfriend was actually a garbage jewel thief. And now he ran away and is on the lamb in Europe. Merry Christmas. Yeah. So that's pretty much it. Um, that's yeah. The, yeah, and in the story, this co-conspirator, the woman who was pretending to be his sister, is just left in the lurch. And that is, of course, the woman who had stolen the ruby in the first place from the prince. Dez will presumably get his comeuppance. I mean, the reckoning, the true reckoning with Dez is that he's now about to go to these criminal sorts of people and try to hawk a paste ruby. He's promised them that he's going to have a real ruby for them, and that is not going to go well for Dez, though we don't see that actually happen in the short story. In keeping with these short stories, it's not quite as as tidy as that. So that's the story, and again, a lot of it really just, which is why it's so appropriate to be doing this around Christmas, because the point of the story is clearly the Christmas tableau, which is pretty lovely. And I do have to mention the way that the story ends, which is yet another Christmas tradition. We've kind of hit all of the Christmas traditions, except for being caught under the mistletoe and kissed. And believe it or not, Poirot himself succumbs to this tradition. And this is how it happens. Ah, he said to himself, and now I go. There is nothing more to be done here. A pair of arms slipped around his shoulders unexpectedly. If you will stand just under the mistletoe, said Bridget. Hercule Poirot enjoyed it. He enjoyed it very much. He said to himself that he had had a very good Christmas. It's the really I might have made it's that a little really, dirtier than it's meant to be, but... No, it's, it was exactly how I read it. It was horrible. I was just like, <laughs> no, don't end like this. Please don't end like this. This is a horrible. So Hercule Poirot, who, who, who let's, let's also remind ourselves, was introduced as a retired police detective, so he's at least in his 60s, is... Kissing a teen <laughs> under the mistletoe in this grand estate, and and that's our final image. That's what we end on. But it's in keeping with the innocence of this. I just think, in re- speaking relatively for Christie, this is such an idyllic and innocent sort of story, and this is very much in keeping with it. Where like, there's no. It's this little girl. Like, yes, she's a teenager, but she's kind of a teenager in the same way Beth from Little Women is a teenager, i.e., never sexualized. She's expressing her. Pre- Appreciation for Monsieur Poirot. Let's talk quickly about the adaptation. Another episode from series slash season three, adapting the short story. So it's, uh, you know, a bit jauntier in tone, which is very much in keeping with the original tone in, in this case. And I found it extremely charming and rather faithful to, to the story as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, um, albeit the incredibly major change in that, yeah. like all of the adaptations, it's set in the mid-1930s. Yeah, so it's set in the mid-1930s, and they, they made the interesting, and I think ultimately an improvement to not have the prince just be some random, vaguely Middle Eastern prince, but a real prince in history, which is Prince Farouk, who acceded to the Egyptian throne in 1936, and the story is set right before, presumably right, right. before... His father is about to die, and this scandal, it's the exact same scandal, he gives the ruby to this woman, really hurts his chances to have a fully functional government because there is this nationalistic party, the Waft Party, which is also a a totally real political movement that was very powerful in the 30s in Egypt. Um, And 
if he looks, you know, foolish or too westernized to the populace, the Waft Party has the ability to, you know, wrest some power. And there had been this sort of delicate balancing act that was still going on in the 30s between the Egyptian royal, the Egyptian monarchy, the British government, and the Waft Party. Ultimately, the Waft Party would actually get sort of bounced out of power because they were seen to be as too accommodating to the British government and the monarchy. But this was, you know, this was a totally real scenario and it just really anchors it. And they make the prince much more of a character. He is pretty awful and outrageous and sort of funny, but like he's just, he's, he's... Completely insensitive and privileged. Not unlike a lot of real people probably in his position. Paro is not having it. He's not having it. I will say this is one of the rare instances in which I think the adaptation in making that change actually ups the discomfort factor, though, of the kind of colonial othering of these characters because he's very much cast in the sort of comedic, spoiled foreign prince role, which is a very paternalistic kind of a view. I don't think that a Western, certainly a British prince, would be portrayed in exactly the same way. So I I was a little uncomfortable with that. I don't know. Perhaps you could have a British prince who accidentally had a bunch of naked pictures taken in Las Vegas. You could. It's just that he's... (laughs) but, But I think British princes certainly do that. They're just as indiscreet as... Egyptian princes, but I think the portrayal of the Egyptian prince in stories like this tends to wallow in that treatment more than it would for a British prince. It's an easier sort of comedic role to put him into. I don't know. Maybe I don't think, being overly I sensitive about I it. I think you're being overly sensitive, but that said, I think that part of the problem is that the reality of his circumstance, which is serious, is undercut by the fact that Poirot can't take him seriously, if that makes any Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. So while there is a legitimate political situation happening here, and, you know, even if he did something that really legitimately needs to be fixed, the fact of Poirot's disdain and the fact that we are clearly going to side with Poirot always and the fact that he's portrayed as like this buffoon character, yeah. it actually it actually makes his ultimate sort of situation less serious. I agree with that. There, there's a bit of a push-pull there that's kind of washing out what they were going for. Right. That's, that's true. It's, yeah, it's washing out the, the overall effect in a way that's, that's not helpful. For the story. The one major improvement that the adaptation has in terms of this, though, is that it is not random that he goes to King's Lacey because Colonel Lacey is a renowned Egyptologist, and mm-hmm. because this is a ruby from Egypt, they believe that the ruby is likely to show up there and that the people who actually took it are going to be staying there. So it's you're at least not scratching your head being like, why, no. wait, why are we going to the state and having to take it for granted the way you are in the short no, story? No, it makes, it makes so. much more sense. Yeah, I mean, and the one change that they also made, which was, <laughs> it's, a sim- it's a plot simplification that allows for an elongation of action, is that Poirot does not have the forethought to acquire a paste replica of the ruby to place with Bridget. So when... Desmond takes the ruby from Bridget's body. It's the real ruby, meaning that they then have to chase after him 
and, and engage in a well, slow motion 1930s uh, car chase. As the adaptation has historically enjoyed doing. Yes, they love their 1930s car chases. They do. Especially, <laughs> especially through like warehouses. Yeah, and the, always with cars, ba- with trucks backing up to block off. You know, uh-huh. one one or both of the parties. I have that's, to that's assume that it was cheaper for them if they could just secure a warehouse space and a truck that could back up. Then they wouldn't have to do like a long country road chase. <laughs> they could just do a much yeah, shorter they didn't, warehouse. They didn't need to have like a village setting or anything. Yeah, right. I'm sure they had one lane that they just went down. Yeah, no, you know, because over and because over again. repeatedly we get these one lane country chases with somebody backing up. Anyway, one thing I want to note was the house which is i mean there's a there's a lot made of for christy who often doesn't make a lot of her settings because i think the setting was important to her and that her childhood christmases were in this grand victorian estate we do get the feeling in the short story that this is a sort of big rambling kind of country mansion the adaptation takes it in the other direction and it's this fantastically modern 1930s. It's incredible. Oh, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's beautiful. It's one of those places where like you see it on the screen and you were like, oh my God, location scouts. Thank you so much for providing this television pleasure to me. It's like all curved, smooth plaster, streamlined, modern walls. The staircase. Lots of of smooth, lots of smooth curve, curving. Oh my God. The staircase is incredible. The balcony are incredible. They definitely made a point of, we didn't even mention it, but in Roger Ackroyd, they did the same thing in the adaptation that it was actually one of the few things that stood out. They had that amazing clock in the hallway that was this like modern clock that was a very minimalist clock, which for then would have been extremely modern and odd looking. And I love when they really amp up the 30s art deco styling well, both I mean, exterior the, and interior for the, the houses. The thing is, it's actually, you kind of take it for granted a lot of times because um, Paro's apartment building is so, at some level, iconic if you watch the series. You know, we don't see it as much in the many, many, many country estates we go to, but this is really a gem in this. Yeah, it's a, it's a particular gem. There's a scene where Poirot teaches the assembled group how to open up a mango and oh, eat it. Oh yeah, it's really it's daintily. like it's it's kind of a useless waste of like 2 minutes. <laughs> no, it's a total waste of 2 minutes, but the odd thing is I'm I'm actually struck as we're rewatching all of these episodes. I know that I watched all of them, but I rarely remember anything specific and I 100% remembered that mango scene. And you know the Poirot, if anyone's going to know how to eat a mango daintily without getting a single bit of juice on him, it's Monsieur Poirot. So. Yeah, and um, apparently I read on something that I guess David Suchai he actually was the one who suggested that. I don't know if that's true, and I actually can't cite my source. Who suggested that scene? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Well, he was really into adding all those little ticks of character, so he... Uh, that doesn't surprise me. That yeah, would, I, I think I, I wish I wish I could recall exactly where that was from, but I, I believe somebody had taught him how to cut a mango exactly like that, and he brought that into the episode. I mean, I know we talk about in general how how what a great performance Suchet does in these, but I had three very short um, moments mm-hmm. that to me were just priceless. 
One is the frown that he makes when he realizes that he's going to have to go to King's Lacey after all, which is a dead ringer for the frown that Kermit the Frog makes as a Muppet. <laughs> like when his face goes down, like I've never seen a human make a more, I, it, it's the identical frown and it was just the most adorable thing that I've, that I've ever seen. Then when he's sleeping and we, you know, I'm not sure if before in the series we've seen Poirot sleeping, but this is the first time in the rewashing that I noticed it. The way that he holds his two little hands on the covers, and then the other thing that I that I loved is during the car chase that we mentioned, he actually lets out an eek, which is. <laughs> Don't worry, I've got an idea. Where's it you are going? Hold tight. It couldn't be cuter if a chipmunk had done it. There's always certain elements of adorableness to him, but fittingly, in a story that's adorable, he really ups the adorable factor, and I was into it because I just, I love, I no, love what Suchet brings to the character. I agree with that, and I will also just, on that note, also note that it happens in a short story too, but I really loved uh, the attention he devoted to the kitchen staff. You know, we talk about this repeatedly, like, don't underestimate the help and, like, don't underappreciate them, etc. But they have, like, a very pudgy um, sort of sad sack of a cook a little bit mm-hmm. who, like, just seems, like, super flattered that anybody's paying her attention in the adaptation. Yeah. And in the yeah, short they, story, in the short story, she actually is so devoted to Lacey is that she comes back. They can't afford full servants anymore. Um, right. And so she comes back only for the holidays, and it's, like, a real bummer to her because apparently they're only living in a corner of the house, which is, like, an actually way, really interesting point in the short story that's, like, you, you know, passes at a glance but is interesting. And by the way, that was based on—I I mean, I'm just assuming it is because the, the Christie's had a cook who actually continued to work for them when they couldn't really afford her anymore, and she was essentially one of the family— and they loved her, and she was an amazing cook. And Christy herself had, goes on a lot of tangents about, and this is a tangent that many people from that era went on. I mean, she, you know, she was born in 1890. She saw firsthand that sort of servant class of well-trained servants um, before World War One, and she talks at great length about just the difference in quality of servants. Right before that time. And the way she puts it, which is actually interesting, is she says they were specialists. Right. They had a lot of respect for what they did and everyone else respected them for what they did because they had specialized knowledge the same way a lawyer or a doctor does. No. And that wasn't the case afterward. It was more like, sure, you could be hired for it. But like the cook mentions that they're not trained properly anymore. I mean, this is such a nostalgic story. If we're going to just be completely honest and say the mystery is like not that good in it. All of the stuff that are the details are really good. And, and I think the cooking in particular and Poirot, who I guess by extension is Chrissy, being so appreciative of the kitchen. And I also thought one of the things that I found was really touching was, I mean, we mentioned it earlier, but the the sort of narrative kindness extended to Mrs. Lacey's attempts at being really inclusive and bringing everybody into decorating for Christmas was a weird detail that kind of just passes by. It doesn't really matter to the plot, but I thought it was lovely. 
You know, I agree. And I will say this because I think we should have an ongoing competition for the most obscure or at least unlikely references to make between other authors and <laughs> Agatha Christie. But this story actually reminded me um, very much of there's this lovely short story by Truman Capote called A Christmas Memory in that most people think of In Cold Blood when they think of Truman Capote or Breakfast at Tiffany's, both of which are very brutal in different ways. It's a very un-Capote-like story, but it is just this really lovely and kind of heartbreaking Christmas memory. I mean, it's a memory of sort of the way it felt to be celebrating Christmas. And I feel like they were doing the same things. I mean, Agatha Christie is a very different writer from Truman Capote, that's for sure. <laughs> you but, don't say. Um, but it's true because this is such a rare Christie story and that that really was her aim. I mean, yes, there's a mystery there and like the mystery is fine. It's not great, but she's actually achieving, she's doing other things successfully. The story is functioning on other levels in a way that her stories don't normally. And I think that's really interesting. I think that for a story that was published in December of her big short story year that was giving the audiences what they wanted, which was Poirot, and providing a warm holiday story, I think it does exactly what it should do. On that note, I think we should wish everyone a happy holiday season. Happy holidays. I guess we'll be back after the new year. We'll be back in the new year with new episodes. The next novel that we are going to be covering will be The Big Four. And in the meantime, we would love if you contacted us, as always, via email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or on Twitter at allaboutthedame, on Instagram at allaboutthedame, or you could contact us individually via Twitter at Kemper Donovan or at Brobcat. Have a great holiday, and we will see you in 2017. We will see you in 2017. Happy New Year. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.